Our passage is Titus 2, 11 to 14. We've read it together. You're going to want to have a copy of the scriptures open so that you can track along this morning as we talk about these verses. In a real sense, when you get to Titus 2, 11 to 14, you come to the heart of the book of Titus. And so I just very briefly uh, want to walk with you and think about how we got to this point in the book. And then I want to make a, along the way a real-world comment of application as to why this passage matters and why the book of Titus matters. So Titus 1.5 tells us that Paul had left Titus on the island of Crete that he might put the church, or you could say the church is, into order. He left Titus on the island of Crete, having planted the churches and started the churches to put these churches into order. And I just want to say to you that this last week, I had three conversations with three different pastors. One was non-denominational. One was, heaven forbid, a Methodist. And the third was a Baptist. And we talked about their situations in their churches. And one of these three was in a situation where he was trying to lead a church from a worldly orientation to a more biblical orientation. One of these pastors was part of a church where he just didn't know if he was going to fit in because of some of the beliefs and the doctrines and the practices of the church. And one of these guys is currently in ministry, but he's interviewing with churches looking for a senior pastor position. And so I'm talking with these guys about the things that they're dealing with in their churches. And all, all I could think in my head is 99% of the problems these guys are facing with would go away if you'd listen to the book of Titus. This is a book about how to put a church into order. And every church, every church without exception in the United States of America will have to make the decision do we want to be a church put into biblical order or will we simply listen to the wisdom of the world and do whatever the world tells us we ought to do within the confines of our church? Is the church something to be tinkered with, modified, and molded into what we want? Or has God in the Bible given us a clear, authoritative word for what he wants the church to be like? And is it our job to then confirm or conform to what, what the Bible says? Let me give you some specifics. Forget the non-denominational and the, the Methodist. Let's just talk about our own faith tradition, the Southern Baptist Convention. Some things that churches probably ought to wrestle with within our own convention of churches. One question would be, can we reduce church and worship to a screen, whether that be a screen that you hold in your hand or whether that be a screen that's up on the stage and we have one person preaching at multiple, quote unquote, I don't know where this fits in the New Testament, satellite churches. Are we free to just tinker with things as we see fit or has God given us a word of authority that we ought to listen to? Can we turn worship into a spectacle or a performance? Is worship a thing that you come simply to consume 
like a concert, or is it something that you come to be involved in and to participate in? Can we use the title pastor or elder or overseer for anyone and everyone? Or has God given us specific instructions about who ought to be recognized with that title and that office? Are we going to be committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency of Scripture? Or will we be pragmatists and simply do whatever quote-unquote works to get more people in the building and more money in the offering box? Those are real-world questions. And every church is going to have to wrestle with it. And if you don't wrestle with it intentionally, you're just going to be swept along by the current of the world, the spirit of our age, and you're going to be swept away from a church that is put into right biblical order. And that's the heart of the book of Titus. At Emmanuel, we don't claim to be a perfect church. We don't claim to have all of our ducks in a row. We don't claim to have no issues that we need to deal with. But I can tell you on behalf of our elders and our leadership, our strong desire is to be a church put into biblical order. Not simply to go along with the spirit of this age, but to be put into right biblical order. And so in the book of Titus, that starts with right leadership. And we spent several weeks talking about this. Right leadership in the church calls for qualified elders and Jake, who preached last week, added this, serving members. Serving members. First of all, qualified elders. And notice that we said elders plural, not elder singular. The idea of right leadership in a church is not a one-man show, a strong man, uh, a senior pastor who has no accountability, who makes all the decisions and whatever he says goes. That's not the biblical model. Nor is the biblical model, let's just, let's just vote on every single thing and exist by majority rule, mob rule. That's not biblical order either. And you find both of those mistakes in the Bible Belt and in Odessa, Texas. So it starts with qualified elders, and then as Jake preached last week, it also includes serving members. And Jake walked us through last week this difficult passage of older women and younger women, and older men and younger men, and slaves and free, and everybody in between has to be active and engaged in the life of a church. Essentially what we've read so far in Titus 1 and 2 is what Paul puts into one or two phrases in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. He, Jesus, gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, that's the word pastor, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's y'all, the church, not just super, super holy people who are better than everyone, but Christians. God gave leaders to the church to equip the church the saints, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, we've already noted in the book of Titus, there's four sections. There's an introduction, there's right leadership. This morning we come to right doctrine, and starting next week we'll be talking about right living. I say that right doctrine is the heart of this book because it connects in both directions. Part of having right leadership in a church is having leadership that preaches and teaches right doctrine. And when you have right doctrine at the heart of a church, what you can expect is right living. Not perfect living, not sinless living, but a changed people 
people whose lives are moving in a new direction. So here's the heart of the book, and here's the big idea of our passage. Right doctrine centers on the gospel. Right doctrine within the church centers on the gospel. That may seem very obvious to you. You may say, of course it does. What else would it center on? I would just submit to you that if you visit churches at random, a cross-section of churches in the United States, or you listen to them online, that you would probably come away thinking that right doctrine centers on all number of things other than the gospel. For example, you'll go to some places and you'll come away with the conviction that right doctrine must center on a specific view of the end times. It's not unimportant, but it's not what right doctrine centers on. You might go to some churches and you might come away saying, well, I listen to them. It sounds like right doctrine centers on something that the world would applaud and be in favor of and approve of. That's not what right doctrine centers on. You might go to some churches and you might find that right doctrine centers on an emotional experience that people have when they come to a church, can we pull on all of your heartstrings? Or you may go to some churches and find that right doctrine centers on pragmatic, practical life tips that you could just as easily get from Dr. Phil as you could from a church. And what Paul is saying to Titus at the heart of this book is right doctrine actually centers on the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been at Emmanuel any length of time, you've heard us talk about the gospel. And you've heard us talk about the gospel with four simple summary statements. This is how we train our people to share the gospel when they get ready to go on a mission trip of any kind. Number one, God is holy. Number two, man is sinful. Number three, Jesus is the answer. Number four, you must repent and believe. That's just a a broad overview. It's not everything that we could say about the gospel. And you could take each of those four simple statements and you could unpack it at great length. When we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking about God's character, who he is. Before anyone knows anything about salvation, they have to know the truth about the one true God. We could talk about human sin. Why is it that all human beings are sinful? Why is sin such a problem? We could talk about the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus. We could talk about the nature of genuine repentance and faith. All of those could be unpacked, but that's a simple summary of the gospel message. The holiness of God, the sinfulness of people like you and me, who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, and what does it mean to receive salvation by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that's essentially what Paul's talking to Titus about in Titus 2, 11 to 14. Now, our approach to these verses this morning is not going to be word by word in order as Paul wrote them. We're going to step back and we're going to ask two questions. First question is, what does Paul have to say about the gospel in this passage? How does he define the gospel? And secondly, What difference does the gospel make in our lives? How does the gospel impact us? Or how should the gospel transform our lives? So question number one, what does Paul say about the gospel? The first thing he says is that the good news begins with God's grace. God's grace. The good news of salvation doesn't begin with me or with you. It begins with the grace of God. Verse 11, the grace of God has appeared. 
God's grace is his unmerited favor. It's his unearned kindness. It's God's free and sovereign determination to save a people, a sinful people, even though they have done absolutely nothing to deserve or to earn or to merit salvation. God's grace is the beginning and it's the ground of the gospel message. Some of you were here back in 2017. We did a Wednesday night series, a five-part series in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, and we talked about the five solas of the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, the glory of God alone. And when we talked about grace, we emphasized that our salvation is by God's grace alone. Sola gratia. It's not according to any good thing in us, but it's according to God's sovereign decision and determination to save a people for His glory. The good news begins with God's grace. And ultimately what Paul says, this is interesting, grace is not a thing It's not a substance you can lay your hands on. Ultimately, it's a person who appeared in time-space history because Paul says the grace of God has appeared, and it appeared in the person of Jesus. What Paul says about Jesus here is very important. It's central to the gospel. Jesus is our God and our Savior. He's God, truly God, And he's our savior. So just think about those two statements for a moment. There's a number of passages in the Bible that speak very clearly to the deity, the true deity of Jesus Christ. John 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Jesus is truly God. You could talk about Colossians 1. Hebrews 1, Jesus creating everything and upholding everything and sustaining everything that he made. And you could very clearly talk about Titus chapter 2, verse 13, that talks about the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Both of those words modify Jesus Christ. He's our great God and he's our great Savior. He is God and he's Savior. And you as a sinner needed God to come to save you. As a sinful human, you needed a sinless human to take your place. The blood of bulls and goats would not, could not suffice. But a mere human could never bear the full weight of the penalty of our sin, sin against an infinitely holy God. So what we needed is a sinless human who could take our place, and we needed God to pay the infinite price required by our sin. And what you have in the person of Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. God become man without ceasing to be God that he might take our place and bear the punishment for our sins. That's what Paul says has happened. Jesus has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. And he who appeared, Jesus, is both God 
and Savior. Why did the angel tell Mary to name him Jesus? Because he came to save his people from their sins. When he marched into Jerusalem, what did they cry out in the triumphal entry? They cried out, Hosanna. What does it mean? It literally means save us. Save us. Jesus did not come to the earth to educate you or enlighten you. Jesus did not come to the earth to affirm or help you reach self-actualization. Jesus came because you were lost and you're dead and you needed to be saved. And Paul says to Titus, Jesus is God and he's Savior. He also says that Jesus died on a cross to redeem us. To redeem us. That's verse 14. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That word redeem or redemption is straight out of the slave market in the first century. It means that Jesus paid a price to save you. He paid a ransom to free you. And the price that he paid and the ransom that he offered was his own life. It was his blood. He purchased us, Peter says, with his own blood. Not with gold or silver, but with his own blood. Jesus died on a cross not just to redeem us, but also to purify us. To purify us. I'm not sure we talk about this enough in evangelical churches today. We talk a lot about heaven, how you can get there, how great it's going to be, how much better it is than hell. All those things are true. There is a way for you to get to heaven. There is a way for you to escape hell. Heaven will be much better than hell. And you need to deal and think about those realities. But one of the truths of the gospel, one of the things that Paul emphasizes here is not just that Jesus died to redeem us, but he died to purify us, to transform us. So that brings us to the second question we're going to wrestle with. How does the gospel transform our lives? What changes ought to take place in us? What things do we need to understand in light of these gospel truths? Number one, Christians belong to Jesus. This is an obvious implication of redemption. Jesus redeemed you. He paid a price. He ransomed you. You now belong to him. You don't belong to yourself. You see this very clearly in 1 Corinthians 6. You're not your own. Why? It's because you were bought with a price. You don't belong to yourself. Your life is not yours. The driving question of your life ought not be what do I want to do with my life, but what does Jesus want to do with my life? Why? Because you belong to him. If you're a Christian, if you're a believer, he redeemed you. He purchased you. You belong to him. Secondly, Christians are zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. If your Bible's open, you can see verse 14. It says, he gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to him. A people who are zealous for good works. If you find yourself scratching your head saying, what does it mean to be zealous for good works? I think you ought to look up at verse 12 where he talks about the grace of God training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. 
I just want to take a minute to think with you about verse 12. It's not that it's more important than any of the other parts of this passage or that the other parts of this passage are less important, but I just want to think with you about verse 12. What Paul says, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, and the grace of God trains us. It is actively training God's people to renounce two things, ungodliness and worldly passions. It's training us to renounce those things, and it's also training us to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. I don't think that we as Christians often associate training with Christianity. Maybe back in the old days, I think about the very first church I pastored, we had a, a program on Sunday nights called Training Union. Training Union. Any of you grow up and you go to Training Union when you were younger? It kind of sounds not so fun in 2023, we think, oh, come up with a better idea than training union. But the idea is pretty good. If you're going to follow Jesus, we need to train you. You need training. You don't just know how to do it naturally. You have to train for this. What we normally associate training with is sports and athletics. And we think about professional athletes or college athletes or even high school athletes. And we say, hey, you guys better train. The high school football team. College football teams, it's time for spring games. Why do we have spring, spring games? It's because you need training. You have to practice. You have to go through these things so you don't go out there and embarrass yourself, but you make us proud. It's time for training. One of the things you'll learn if you talk to the most successful athletes is that training does not just take place when you wake up early and you go run wind sprints. It doesn't just take place when you go to the weight room and you lift weights. It, just, it doesn't just take place when you're on the field or the court and you're running plays and you're running drills. Real athletic training dominates the entirety of your life. Look at somebody who's a, an exceptional NBA player or NFL player or Major League Baseball player. They go to practice, they train, they prepare, they work on technique. They don't get to leave and eat anything that they want. That's going to cancel out their training. They don't get to leave, smoke a pack of cigarettes every day, and think that their cardio is going to hold up because they did 30 minutes on the bike that morning. And there's some old pictures. I like these old pictures. I don't have any of them for you this morning. There's some old pictures of men who are playing in the Super Bowl and it's halftime at the Super Bowl and they're sitting in the locker room and they're drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette. And you say, I wonder why those guys could only play five years in the NFL and their bodies started breaking down. It's because training didn't dominate the entirety of their life. Listen, as a Christian, you're called to train. To train. The grace of God is training you to renounce certain things and to live out certain things. What do we renounce? Well, we renounce ungodliness. What is ungodliness? It's living your life as if God did not exist or matter. You understand, you can come into this room on Sunday mornings and live the rest of your life during the week as if there were no God or if there was a God, He didn't matter. That's ungodliness. And 30 minutes in this room doesn't cancel out a life of ungodliness. 
Ungodliness is always connected to worldly passions, looking to the world with desires that you think, if I fulfill these desires that I have in a worldly way, I'll find happiness and peace and contentment and joy. And Paul tells Titus, God's grace trains his people to renounce those things. I'm not saying that it's going to be easy to renounce those things. That's where the training part comes in. God's grace trains us to renounce those things, but also to live out other things. Self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Can we just talk about the self-control part for a minute? If you've been with us in the book of Titus, have you noticed how often Paul says to Titus that somebody ought to be self-controlled? He said to Titus, the elders of a church ought to be self-controlled, chapter 1, verse 8. He says to Titus in chapter 2, verse 2, old men should be self-controlled. He says in chapter 2, verse 5, that young women should be self-controlled. And he doesn't specifically say that old women should be self-controlled, but he does say that the young women should learn self-control from the old women. So, self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 6, the young men should be self-controlled. Chapter 2, verse 12, Christians should live self-controlled lives. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Book of Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The world you live in has no concept of self-control. Zero. The world you live in every day, you live and you breathe in, you take in culture, it tells you constantly, you should just live out self, live for self, live to promote self, live to actualize self, live to satisfy self, and Jesus calls you to something different. He calls you to live a life of self-control. Self-control, upright, godly lives in this present age. We renounce ungodliness and worldly passion, we live out self-controlled, upright, godly lives. How do you do that? How do you actually train for that? How does God's grace train you for that? Well, number one, it's the job of the Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, to convict His people of sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness. So you can't do this on your own. The Holy Spirit has to be at work in your life to bring conviction that you ought to renounce some things and begin to live out other things. When the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, to that end, the Holy Spirit calls you into fellowship with a local church. And hopefully, it's a local church set into biblical order. Not worldly order, but set into order rightly and biblically. And within the church, the Spirit of God is at work. The grace of God is at work to train you to renounce certain things and to live out certain things. Hopefully you understand, as we've talked about this morning, that your training in no way, shape, or form can take place in 30 minutes in this room on a Sunday morning, even if you double it and you add in a Wednesday night. No. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible. That's why we encourage you to be men and women and boys and girls of prayer who talk to God. Listen to God in the Bible. Talk to God in prayer. Train yourself. Let the grace of God train you to renounce certain things and to live out certain things. 
I know we spent some time on this. Let me, let me make one more point. As your pastor who loves you. The Spirit of God at work in your life. A church put into biblical order. Personal devotions. All important to training. Outside of that, I beg you to just be honest enough with yourself to admit that the media you intake is training you. You may not realize it. It's the easiest kind of training in the world because you don't have to do anything. You can be completely passive in this training. You don't have to use your mind. You don't have to use your body. You can be completely inactive and inert. And in the movies you watch, the TV shows you watch, the streaming you watch, the social media you take in, the songs you listen to, and if you want to be old school, the books you read, all of that media is training you. Probably not to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Probably not to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. I don't know all the media you're taking in, but I just know the majority of the media that's out there in all of those forms, it's training you. And it's training your children. What is the amount of time you spend in, let's just call it Bible training, compared to media training? When you just think about the raw numbers, which do you think will have the greater impact on your life? When you think about the media that you intake, do you have standards? Do you draw lines anywhere? Is it based on a worldly way of drawing lines or is it based on a biblical way of drawing lines? Do you have any sort of filter for the media that you might take in or that you might allow into your home? Or do you simply make self-serving excuses and say, well, I know, I know the language, well, I know the violence, well, I know the sex, well, I know, the, I know, I know, I know, I know, but it's training you. The grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Next, Christians are waiting for Jesus. Waiting for Jesus. I want you to look at verse 11 and verse 13. Verse 11 says, The grace of God has appeared. That's past tense. It has appeared. Paul wrote this some 2,000 years ago. And even from the perspective of Paul writing it, the appearing of Jesus to bring the grace of God to sinners was past tense. It was in the rearview mirror. It's certainly past tense in the rearview mirror for us. Jesus appeared. The Word became flesh Jesus walked the earth in space-time history. Past tense. Verse 13. We are waiting for our blessed hope. That's present tense, waiting. Right now, waiting. For the blessed hope, our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared, past tense. We're waiting, present tense, for Jesus' return in the future. There's a historical reality in the past that molds us in the present to be waiting people, waiting for Jesus to return in the future. Now, 
At Emmanuel, we've been studying the book of Revelation. Our ladies went through the book of Revelation. Our men are in the middle of the book of Revelation. I understand as we go through Revelation that within our church, we do not all see eye to eye on all the details of Revelation. I'll be honest with you. As I've taught it to our men, I don't always see eye to eye with myself on the book of Revelation. It's a challenging book, but one thing we see eye to eye on when you read the book of Revelation and when you read the scripture is this broken, busted, fallen, wicked, sinful, ungodly world will not be set right until Jesus Christ comes back. We can debate all the pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill, all that stuff we can debate and argue. I love debating it. I love arguing it. I'll tell you why I'm right and why you're wrong. I'll change my mind tomorrow and tell you why I was wrong and I'm right the next day. But what is clear is none of it gets fixed ultimately until the Lord Jesus returns. So what do we do as the people of God? Well, amongst other things, we wait. We wait. That sounds passive to Americans. In the biblical mindset, it's not passive. It's active. We are actively waiting for the Lord Jesus to return. Until that day comes, we have good news to share. Good news to share. Look at verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. I want to be clear together about that word all. That word all is not an all without exception. It's an all without distinction. Paul is not saying to Titus, Jesus appeared, therefore every single person will be saved. That's not what Paul's saying. That's not what he's saying in the context, and it's clearly not what he's saying when you compare it to other things that Paul says in the New Testament. Paul is not a universalist. Universalism is a worldview that says, in the end, every single person person without exception will be saved and go to heaven. It's not a biblical view. It's the most common view when you attend a funeral in the United States of America. It's the default assumption of virtually every funeral that you attended. They lived, they died, they must be in heaven. That's how it works. It's universalism. It's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying the grace of God has appeared, therefore every single person is going to heaven, kick back and wait on Jesus. Paul's not a universalist. Paul's also not a pluralist. Pluralism is a worldview that says there are many roads up the mountain and you can pick your road and they all lead up the mountain to the same place. What matters is are you genuine in your faith? You can be a Buddhist, you can be a Muslim, you can be a whatever you want. You can be a good atheist. There's lots of roads up the mountain. In the end, we all end up there. As long as you're genuine. Pluralism says, you know, there's some bad apples. They're not going to make it. They're bad people. But as long as you're a a good person and you're making an effort and up the mountain you go, you'll get there in the end. Paul's not a pluralist. The Old Testament is definitely not a pluralist document. The whole point is that Yahweh is the only true God. So Paul's not a universalist and he's not a pluralist. He's also not an inclusivist. Inclusivists say, Jesus is the only way that you can be saved, but you don't have to know that in order to be saved. 
So this view, the inclusivist view, it tries to get a little bit closer to the Bible. And basically what they say is, as long as you're a good person, a genuine person, you're making an effort. When you die, you'll wake up and surprise, surprise, it wasn't Buddha or Allah or humanism that got you there. It was Jesus. Pleasant surprise for you. Jesus is the only one who can save you, but you don't have to know anything about him. You just have to be a nice person, a good person, an earnest person, a genuine person, and you'll get there in the end. Paul's not an inclusivist. Romans 10 just blows that completely out of the water. He says if they don't hear the gospel, they're not going to be saved. They have to hear the gospel message. Paul is an exclusivist. Exclusivism is the biblical view that says there is only one way that sinful people can be made right with the holy God. And it's through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way a sinful person can receive that gift that grace from God through Jesus is by hearing the gospel message. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Hearing the gospel message and responding by repenting of their sin and putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without question, that's the least of the popular views up on the screen today in our world. And without question, it's the biblical view of salvation. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, Paul says. Not all without exception, all without distinction. For Jew and for Gentile. For older women and younger women, Titus 2. Older men and younger men, Titus 2. Elders and church members, Titus 2. Slaves and freedmen, Titus 2. This morning, if you have never put your faith in the Lord Jesus, repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, this gospel message that's at the heart of right teaching in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, this gospel message is for you. And the grace of God can be real in your life if you'll repent of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've done that and you're doing it and the grace of God is training you to renounce ungodliness and worldly living and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, you have good news to share with a world that is lost and dying. The good news is that Jesus came to save sinners.